Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast with me, Mark Cribb. And uh, this is the week where the government's long-awaited intervention in hospitality rents was released and it's been described almost as quite comical, really, in its likely lack of impact. Uh, It fundamentally says pay your rent if you can, don't charge rent if you don't have to as a landlord, and in essence, all try and find a way through and play nicely. But basically, the law and your lease is the fundamental principle. It feels like it somewhat states the obvious, and the leverage of negotiation is still very much one-sided. Watch this space to see if it changes, or the potential catastrophic impact of this over the next couple of weeks. Uh, There's also been a lot of debate in the last few days around the one metre and the two metre rule and a lot of publicity with Rishi uh, apparently saying he would like to reduce it to save the economy. And all of these issues and many more come up in my chat with today's guest David Abramovich from Grind London, a collection of coffee shops, cocktail bars and restaurants. And it is worth noting on here that we do have a slight delay on the audio. So I do sound half asleep at times as there is a pause between David's voice and mine just a little bit of a satellite delay with the technology we're using so this is probably a great point to mention that you can become a supporter of the podcast on Patreon and all money raised on there goes towards making this podcast better with equipment and in this instance an editor who could have gone through and taken out all of those gaps and I used to have a small crew that helped with the production of this podcast but with all of my venues closed and income dried up I now having to do it myself so every time you hear one of those annoying gaps just imagine what a difference your donation could have made and how much less annoying it would be if you've done so thank you so much head over to the website uh, to join our patreon page humansofhospitality.co.uk anyway back to david and his hospitality journey really started with inheriting a mobile phone shop where he loved the building but alas not the business Fast forward and David has managed to walk that tricky operational and design tightrope where his venues are both a great stop off for daytime coffees but also a sit down meal and by night transforms into a busy cocktail bar. Not in any way an easy feat but something that feels so effortless when it's done right but in reality is a real challenge. Now, I personally remember Grind for some memorable crowdfunding videos and how early in its development it managed to attract significant levels of investment and expanded into some high-profile sites as a result. Uh, We touch on this cycle of raising money and investing that money and how useful it is that they just raised funds prior to the pandemic and had not yet spent them. Albeit, it is now very frustrating to have to burn through some of that cash just to keep their heads above water rather than opening and investing in new venues. Uh, We also touch on how the diversification into online retail has been helpful in keeping the business and some of the team ticking over. And David touches on his, his thoughts on Tronk and the furlough scheme, as well as having some great perspectives on when to reopen, rental issues, distancing, blunt instruments, targeted measures and more. I very much hope you enjoy the conversation and if you've listened before and enjoyed a chat that I've had with someone else, please pick up your phone right now, scroll down to the review section and hit the five star button and click on subscribe. Just that few seconds of your time really helps me out in keeping producing this podcast free of charge. Enjoy the chat. Okay, David from uh, Grind, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast uh, today. Hugely appreciated. Can you just uh, tell people listening, where in the world are you, David, at the moment? 
Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm currently sat at the at my dining room table in my house in uh, in Shoreditch, where I eat three meals a day and work at the moment, and spend way too much time sat at this same table. Yeah, is this is a yeah a sort of a post pandemic solution? Presumably, where are you normally based? Do you have a head office somewhere? Or? Yeah, so uh, yeah, normally uh, normally at the office and obviously running around our location. So our head office is in Shoreditch. We have a coffee roastery in Elephant and Castle, and then yeah, various locations around London. So normally uh, running around in circles. Okay, amazing. So for uh, people that don't know uh, Grind, can you just tell me a little bit about Grind and uh, yeah, where you're based in the world and what you do, please? Sure, yeah. So I founded the business in 2011 when I uh, inherited the family business, effectively, which was um, a mobile phone retail business, which I knew that I didn't want to keep, but it had one great little uh, great little shop, which was a circular building on Old Street Roundabout in East London, which was just becoming known as Silicon Roundabout, where lots of the tech businesses were, were moving in. Uh, and it's kind of just next to Shoreditch, which is obviously where you know, lots of young artistic, creative people are, and then just on the outskirts of the city as well. So I was very attached to the building um, because it'd been my dad's phone shop, and I used to work in that one as a as a kid and as a you know as a teenager selling mobile phone covers and stuff. So it was very sentimental the building, and I knew I wanted to keep it and do something with it. And I felt that a really good use for the building would be some kind of coffee shop or wine bar where people would meet. So decided to turn it into a coffee shop um, and to copy kind of, you, you know, the best bits that I'd seen of the independent cafe sector, i.e., you know, high quality coffee, flat white culture, etc., And then also kind of mix in the things that we, that I felt that the chains did really, really well, like, you know, speed of service, having an app, high volume, etc. So that was kind of the first, uh, that, that was the basic concept behind the first store. I, I still had a, a tech business, which I'd founded at the time. That was still my full-time job. So it was very much a little bit of a fun side project. And then one thing led to another over the years. Nice. And that interest in hospitality, that was just from going to bars and restaurants then? It had never been a, a long-term thing? You, you knew you didn't want to do mobile phone retail, but that hadn't been a sort of a, a long-term plan? Or? No, not at all. Um, this is my, my first hospitality job. I never even had a job kind of working behind a bar. I just, for whatever reason, ended up having other kind of other jobs when I was younger. Um, so no, this is my first hospitality job. And it was, you know, it was purely opportunistic based on the need to do the need and want to do something with this building and feeling that no one had necessarily done this coffee thing in the way that I thought it could be done that no it was very opportunistic nice I think it's nice when buildings inspire a solution there's there's something about certain spaces now that you've got a few venues can you just tell me how many you've got but also are they all are they all a little bit different to suit the building or have you got sort of one style that you you roll out across the others now um yes i know so it's evolved a lot since then Um, about a year after we opened we started serving cocktails in the evening um you know hinged around the espresso martini which 
you know, turns out if you're making great coffee, um, you can also make a great espresso martini. So we became very well known for that. And that really helped to kind of establish the brand. And we then started rolling out um, further sites. So, you know, the first one was called Shoreditch Grind. Then we opened Soho Grind. Then we opened Holborn Grind. And then we opened London Grind on London Bridge. So you now each each site that we open, and we have 11 now, um, is has its own name, um, although it's obviously part of the Grind family and is designed, you know, we start with what's the building and what's the area and then work backwards. Of course, there are design elements that are, you know, consistent across them all. We're very well known for our kind of marble tables and neon signs and lots of planting. And we did all of that stuff long before everyone did all of that stuff. We kind of, we were, we were part of a few who, you know, inverted commas, invented that look. Um, we were certainly very early anyway. Um, but no, we, we, we like to keep them nice and individual and not just be a kind of a copy-paste chain. And we've also, you know, from about from Site 4 onwards, so London Bridge, we uh, introduced a kitchen and a full restaurant element as well. So we're kind of truly all day, all night, breakfast, lunch, dinner, weekend, brunch, coffee and cocktails now. So it's evolved a long way since we opened the first site and you know evolution is something that's been really important to us it's always been about evolution as opposed to revolution you know we've never it's just evolved as as we've thought it should evolve you know to sell the products that that we wanted to sell and to become the place that we want to go it wasn't kind of dreamt up in a boardroom at the beginning and i think our customers and our staff can feel that yeah, it's a really good niche to uh, to get right, isn't it? Because there's loads of people, obviously, in the daytime coffee sector. There's a fair few people in the evening sort of cocktail sector, but very few people manage to do both, which is a great use uh, of space and you know use of the building to be able to monetize it throughout the entire day. Um, how, how did you you know how do you get that right? Because it's uh, it's a pretty rare thing, isn't it? You know that that balance between having sort of two personalities, I would imagine. Yeah, it's it is pretty rare, and I think. I think a lot of people have tried to do that because obviously, as you say, you know, there's, there's a lot of logic behind it, you know, let's sweat the asset, let's extend the day part, you know, those things. It's very obvious that it will be a good thing commercially to be able to do that, but it's quite hard to get people to get their head around coming in for a takeaway coffee and then coming back for a cocktail at night. Um, you know, I think we one of the few things we've done successfully. Um, we've done, we've made plenty of mistakes, but one of the things we really got right was um, getting people to do that. And I think, you know, I think we persevered with it, and I think we we did a really good job on the cocktails. And I think because of the brand and the music and the lighting and the general atmosphere and the much higher level of fit out that we do than lots of our competitors, I think what we effectively did was create bars that could work as coffee shops during the day. Whereas what lots of other people did was create coffee shops and try and turn them into bars in the evening. And actually, if you want to be a bar, it kind of has to be a much nicer environment and it has to be better designed and better thought out. So we, we end up with bars and restaurants that can also function as coffee shops, not the other way around. And I think, I think that's a crucial difference. 
Yeah, no, it's a really, uh, yeah, it, it's it's a good thing to be able to pull off. And I think it's, you know, it's why it's the art of the uh, the restaurateur rather than the science of the restaurateur is it, it is about how a space feels fundamentally. And you, you certainly don't go into a Costa or a Starbucks and think, I want to come back here uh, for the evening. So yeah, it's a good thing to pull off. Do, do you have the same uh, staff? Are your baristas and your, and your cocktail staff the same? Or is it very much run as a sort of, you know, almost a day business and an evening business? Um, so we have, you know, we have store level management teams who oversee the whole thing, but then, uh, then the individual team members tend to specialize in being either baristas or bartenders. So like, it's not a complete changing of the guard at, at 5 p.m., but it's definitely a night focused and a day focused team. Yeah. Same with play, playlists and lighting and all that kind of stuff, I presume. Yeah, the lighting the lighting changes um, about five pm, and then we have um, you know we have a, a DJ that works. We have our own recording studio um, above our original site in Shoreditch, and we have uh, a DJ that works with us on creating playlists. You know that run all day, every day, and so they they kind of automatically transition without the staff members having to do anything. That's cool, isn't it? I was chatting to um, Andrea from Mercato Metropolitano a little while ago as well, and he has the same. In fact, he's now got an app, so you can uh, anybody can play their uh, their music and their playlists at home, basically. Given that, any thought? Um, yeah, I mean, our, our playlists are all on Spotify anyway, so lo- lots of people subscribe and, and listen to our listen to our playlists as well. Yeah, amazing. All right, I'm going to check it out. Um, and then, yeah, food wise, so. Uh, yeah, what what style of food is it? Is this sort of sit down meal kind of restaurant food, or is this uh, more more sort of daytime casual snacky food, or again all of the above? Um, I mean, it is you, you know it is sit down and be served in a full kind of restaurant service. Um, we are very popular for weekend brunch and for for breakfast during the week, but particularly so for weekend brunch. You know, smashed avocado, eggs Benedict, vegetarian breakfasts, breakfast burritos, that kind of stuff, um, and then bottomless prosecco and bloody mary's to go with it so you know we're very very busy for that and you know in our biggest site in greenwich we'll do four or five hundred covers for brunch on a saturday well we did until coronavirus anyway <laughs> um and then yeah it's kind of very simple accessible food to go with your coffee and your cocktails you, you know we're not we're not trying to change the world in terms of pushing boundaries on food it's about you know a great burger, a great steak dish, a great chicken dish, a great pasta dish, nice and simple and accessible, you know, relatively reasonably priced and a few ingredients, but, you know, really high quality, but, you know, under promise over deliver style of food. Okay. Yeah. Something else, I guess, that the, the, the kind of more chain, the daytime coffee places, I guess that's where they save a lot of cash is by not having to put in kitchens. So I, I suppose it's inevitable that, uh, yeah, if you're going to get that evening market right as well, and then you've got to pay for the fit out of costs, you've, you've definitely got to sweat the asset, as you say. So you've, you've grown to 11 venues. Has this been organic growth or have you got investors in? Or? Um, yeah, no, we've had, we've had some external investors from the start, some high net worth individuals, and we've um, done several rounds of crowdfunding so we've raised about seven million in total of crowdfunding from about three thousand investors so yeah i think i think of all of the crowdfunding that has gone into the hospitality industry we've had about half of it um so that's been a big part of our journey yeah that's amazing what's uh, been the biggest part of the success in that is that down to uh i don't know the love of the uh the customers kind of liking the brand or is it um I don't, is it some key investors seeing a, a, a good opportunity? No, it's very much, um, you know, it's very much 
500 pounds and 100 pounds and 5,000 and 10,000 pounds from lots of customers. Um, and yeah, I think it's all about the brand and the experience. You, you know, we have we have quite a recognizable brand now and lots of people really love the brand. And I think that, that plays across everything we do. And, you know, it's been a big part of the success more recently of our grind at home uh, coffee coffee range as well. So look, I think everything we do comes back to, you know, customer experience which is also brand it's kind of the same thing as brand really isn't it um and i think you know people recognized and enjoyed that and, and wanted to be a part of it yeah amazing which platform did you use a matter of interest for crowdfunding because it's come up a few times on the uh, crowd crowdcube okay crowdcube, yeah. recommend yeah absolutely yeah no they've been uh, they've been amazing amazing partners for us so we, we did three rounds we did a, a bond first of all uh, which was debt, so we raised 1.3 million, which we repaid last year in full, which was nice um, to give everyone their money back, having you know having paid them their interest along the way. And then we raised 2.2.1 uh, and 3.4 uh, of equity in 2017 and 2019. Each time, you know, giving away around nine percent of the business. Well, I say giving away, sorry, selling around nine percent. <laughs> Excellent. That's really good. So um, pre-pandemic then, you know, how, how were things going? Did you have plans to uh, continue to open new locations? Are they still, you know, are they in build at the moment, I suppose, and, and any that are still due to open? Or has the, uh, has the pandemic had a bit of an impact on that? Um, yes, definitely had an impact on that. Um, no, I think things were going well. I think 2019 was not a hospitality vintage year, or certainly it wasn't for us. You know, we we had many years of kind of double digit like for like growth, um, but we certainly started to see that slow down in 2019. I think, you know, I think a bit of a Brexit hangover and then, you know, what was going to happen with Brexit, the deadline kept getting pushed, didn't help. We had um, an election called on December the 12th, which was, you know, the bumper Christmas party night of the year. You know, that election being called on that day alone cost us, many many tens of thousands of pounds of cancelled christmas bookings and terrible weather in october versus the year before so 2019 was not a vintage year but it was still a good year um and we actually went into you know we started 2020 really strong actually um we felt like there'd been a little bit of a bounce from kind of all of the brexit hangover stuff and it felt like that was behind us and yeah we had a huge amount planned so we were due to go on site in March to fit out a new site in South Bank. We have another site committed in Canary Wharf. And we also were supposed to be opening in quite quick succession our first three franchise stores with our franchise partners, SSP, who are going to be opening kind of small grind to goes in train stations and airports. So uh, our site in Victoria Station is built, but not able to open now because it was finished just after lockdown and then we were supposed to be building further sites in waterloo and glasgow stations as well so yeah look everything is on hold at the moment unfortunately um yeah tough tough, tough times yeah go on yeah no look and i mean look in terms of what's gonna happen i think i think it's still too early to say to be honest i think it's certain that you know we had we had certain amounts of equity capital left over and certain amounts of bank debt in place already before this to fund our expansion. Without a doubt, a, a decent slug of that is now just going to go on 
you know, staying alive and, and funding losses as, as we go through this period and emerge from it. So there's no doubt that it will have some impact and that we won't open as many stores as we would have if we'll open any new ones at all. Um, I think it's too early to say yet because obviously we don't know when we're opening again and we don't know how strong or weak the bounce back is going to be. Yeah, frustrating. I think so many of us felt that 2020 was finally after, yeah, you know, a few years of painful uh, sort of yeah, grinding to a halt, I suppose, of, of government and the impact that was having on the national psyche. And uh, yeah, we thought we were we were ready to bounce out of it. And this certainly hasn't helped on a, on a personal level, the seasonality of this as well happening just before spring, huge impact around the sort of uh, the country, I suppose, for places that rely on uh, seasonal weather. How about for you in, in London? Is the business seasonal at all? Or is it pretty consistent throughout the year? I mean, it's pretty consistent, but you definitely yeah, you definitely wouldn't pick that time. I mean, we've got one site in Liverpool Street and we only we acquired it um we acquired it last year and we didn't get it open until April, which meant we had a part summer and it's very much um a site that, you know, on a Thursday or a Friday night, um it's, you know, one of the busiest it's gotta be one of the busiest places in the country in terms of, you know, people having after work drinks in the sun. It's pretty crazy. And yeah, every Thursday and Friday at the moment, I look out the window at this amazing weather and think, if only, if only, as I'm sure you do with a with a terrace in Bournemouth on the beach. Um, so yeah, look, it's a, it's a shame. I think, you know, I think the good, the 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 you know the good news for us at least is that this hit this hit after a fundraise, but before we spent most of the fundraise. You know, you tend to go in cycles of you raise money and then you spend it on new sites and then you raise money again and you spend it on new sites. So fortunately for us, it became after we'd raised some money, but before we'd gone on site and spent it all on new projects. So that was fortunate for us, but certainly for the industry, um, the, the timing of this hitting just at the start of summer is not good. And then kind of how good the weather has been is rubbing salts in the wound really, isn't it? Oh, it really is. Yeah, I, I opened a new venue last year. Similar, we opened it in June. So, you know, June, we just spent the, the 30 days running around like lunatics trying to work out how to run it. And then we traded really for July and August. And, and it's it's a huge, it's probably got a sort of 300 cover terrace overlooking the gardens in the main town centre. And, uh, and we spent, you know, half a million quid getting it open and this was going to be the year where we proved that we were right to do it and to see it sat there uh yeah not trading at all uh, is tough times and, and unfortunately we were the other way around we just spanked all the money that we had to uh, to get it open and, and really needed the cash flow to continue it so yeah tough tough times you you'd already um been trading online though prior to this uh, was that as a result of sort of challenging trade or have you been doing that in sort of in unison with the growth of the business anyway and it's just become a little bit more of a focus um yeah no very, very much the latter more seeing as, as an more seeing it as an opportunity really so in 2015 we decided to you know we decided that at that point we were buying so much coffee and that we should we should do it ourselves so we set up a small roastery in Shoreditch and over the years, the scale of that grew to the point where it had kind of outgrown the space that it was in because it was in the same space as our head office. So um, decided um, last, I don't know, about, about 18 months ago or so that we should relocate it to a much larger kind of future-proof facility. 
Um, so we did that in Elephant and Castle and kind of as part of that decided that we should really push into selling coffee to people at home um, because, you know, very strong brand, very large Instagram following, very large digital audience and, you know, ultra high quality coffee product that we're producing for our stores. Why not package it up and sell it to people at home? And, you know, nice to have a bit of a hedge away from the high street uh, was the thought process at the time because, you, you know, we did see, you, you know, we're in a strange place because we are, you know, central London, young, cool, fast growing and kind of at the at the really most exciting end of the spectrum. If you, you know, if you compare it to maybe some of the legacy chains that are 30 years old and all over the country. So arguably we're best placed, but nevertheless, you, you know, it's just been, it's been a slog for the last couple of years, you know, with all of the changes from, you know, from the price of everything going up because of Brexit and the impact on, on the dollar and business rates going up and changes to London living wage and, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It has been, you know, there has just been pressure. So even though we've, we've grown sales, you know, profitability has been squeezed for the whole sector. So we were definitely attracted to having, you know, a bit of a hedge away from, um, away from just being exposed on the high street, which also is why we decided to look into franchising and travel locations as well, because, you know, you know the economics of running in an airport are just different to running on the high street. So that, that, was, the, that was the logic and we launched our Nespresso pods. Um, so they are Nespresso pods. They work in an Nespresso machine, but they're compostable, not plastic. And they have organic, super high quality coffee, not kind of, you know, slightly lower quality coffee that you'll find in pots. So we launched all of that in January 19. Um, and, you know, it's been, it's been, it was good and it, and it grew solidly and it was becoming more and more meaningful. And then obviously, you know, since lockdown, it has now just absolutely exploded and become you know become a complete and utter lifeline for the business so i'm very glad that we uh, did that for sure yeah that's good keep some some income coming in and am i right in saying that your coffee you can buy it in um supermarkets and stuff as well is that just the nespresso pods or have you also got a, uh, a ground coffee no, no, we, so we sell whole bean ground and um, Nespresso pods. And yeah, you know, it's, it's also stocked in places like Selfridges, Ocado, uh, Amazon, and then on our website. Although the vast majority of sales, you know, we tested with Sainsbury's for a little while as well. But our real focus and the vast majority of our sales are online directly, directly through our website. Um, and, and, you know, we've been, and that, that part of the business has stayed functional um throughout you know the roastery has been open every single day since lockdown came uh, and the team you know the small team there have, have carried on working and traveling there throughout and yeah we've been you know we've been sending out parcels from our fulfillment center every single day throughout this whole thing so that's that's never stopped which has been nice to at least have you know part of the business uh continue to function you know we're up to about five thousand parcels a week now so it's become very meaningful very quickly that side of the business that's good and that's something presumably you see uh, continuing once once this is over and the stores are all back open yeah definitely I, I don't see you know i don't see any reason why people won't carry on you know the majority of our sales already are outside of london so it's clearly not people who are just missing coming it's not just people who are missing coming to our stores um, i think it's just people who are you know looking for an alternative to some of the bigger names 
and you know enjoying a higher quality product so yeah hopefully hopefully that should continue and you know if it does continue at anything like this level it'll certainly be transformative for the business but which will be very helpful because obviously of the uncertainty in the the high street the high street side yeah good to uh to diversify and i think there's quite a lot of hospitality businesses who've taken this either as a creative opportunity to try and pivot in some way and certainly a lot of suppliers i think in our industry who have always traditionally been b2b but are now doing some sort of b2c arm uh, a number of which i've spoken with so yeah i think the human race is uh is great how it responds uh to these challenges and, and comes up with some sort of new scenario um so moving on to the to the pandemic specifically so if we go back in time to march and there was that week i guess between boris saying you know don't go to bars and restaurants and then rishi yeah. coming out uh you know later in the week with the furloughing scheme and all that kind of stuff the, the impact on you how, how much of your business was takeaway anyway and have you managed to keep any stores open or was it literally you know full shutdown since then yeah what a week that was so i think you know after after the boris monday announcement we decided to close everywhere immediately except for three locations. Um, we kept those three locations open for takeaway only um, just for a few days. I mean, purely just to see how it went and to try and use up some perishable stock really. But then on the Saturday, on the Friday rather, when, when lockdown became official, um, we decided to close everything um, the next day, you know, prioritizing the safety of, our staff and our customers and look, I think the situation then was very different in terms of it uh, you know than it is today in terms of the fear factor being much higher then and, and the the risks being much less clear to different age groups and things like that so we felt that you know it was the right thing to do to, to close all of the stores we actually just reopened one this week so we just reopened our grab and go in Greenwich so we have a very large space in Greenwich but um, on the side of it is a small kind of a small shop that just does takeaway normally. So, you know, the store is now, you know, open just for takeaway, that just the grab and go. We're still, you know, 95% of our floor space is still closed, but we have the grab and go opening. And actually it's been a, it's been a pleasant surprise. It's actually performed very well. Um, uh, I think boosted by the, boosted by the good weather. So look, it's certainly nice to have, uh, at least just have something trading again, really, and have, have a few of the staff back to work. Yeah, I think it's it's exciting. We uh, reopened our uh, takeaway as well uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, certainly, the hotel is a bit of a drive through that we did, and uh, financially, I'm not sure that it makes a huge amount of sense. But emotionally, just to see chefs in the kitchen and sort of yeah, see it see it fired up again as a business because it's pretty. Uh, I don't know. It's a strange feeling seeing your venues empty and, and mothballed. I think I heard you say. Uh, a few days ago about maybe you know ride, riding around the city and seeing your closed sites and, and how that made you feel it's an odd feeling isn't it yeah i mean yeah i've been uh as i've said on a few of these podcasts and, and interviews in the paper and stuff you know i've been going on been going on bike rides pretty much every day since it began you know when my hour of exercise and uh yeah it's very strange riding around central london you know just as a londoner it's bizarre to go stand in the middle of you know, in the middle of Regent Street and be able to just stand there in the street and not get run over because there's no cars anywhere. You know, the whole thing, you know, stand outside Buckingham Palace and be the only person there. It's like an abandoned film set. Um, and then, yeah, also going and kind of looking through the windows or popping into some of our locations. Um, it's just bizarre. You know, they are, they're normally full of people and full of life. And 
you know, really you go there to see the people and to see the team and to see the customers and just to kind of be in that busy, exciting atmosphere and to, to see them all just gathering dust and the plants starting to die. It's very depressing. I'm certainly looking forward to getting them open again. Yeah, it's an emotional thing. I went and sat in my restaurant uh, and it was a bank holiday weekend about two weeks ago and the beach was was packed. I can't remember if it was pre or post the latest release, but anyway, it was a busy evening. I think it was maybe the first weekend after we'd been partially released and uh, and I sat in there and, and it's just the first time. Normally, like you say, these these spaces have got such an energy and I thought, you know, if if she, the, the restaurant, had a personality, it must be so confusing that every single day for the last 10 years, including, you know, Christmas Day and New Year's Eve, it's always buzzing, it's always full of people, it's always alive. And uh, yeah, it felt very odd to sit there and, and sort of see her so quiet and think, God, she's absolutely no idea why just one day you know the last the last 10 11 years just just stopped in an instant and nobody came back so yeah very uh, odd and uh, an, an emotional feeling and i can't wait to to reignite her um one of the biggest areas that we i think all thought we were going to be impacted you know we're a huge employer you talked of the the challenges i suppose in the last couple of years of of the cost of running the business we've seen some high profile businesses go under and, and a big part of that is because we you know we employ so many people and staff costs are such a high percentage of what we do um we were all i think you know, terrified for what we were going to do with our team. And even if you were well financed, I'm sure the thought of, of all of that cash disappearing very quickly, you know, just uh, paying your team to sit at home was was challenging. Do you remember the night that, that Rishi came on the telly and announced the, the furlough scheme? And were you expecting that? And what were your thoughts uh, when he said what he did? God, yeah, I mean, I don't think I'll, I will never forget. I'll never forget that week. Um, I remember it vividly. Um, yeah, look, I think during that week, so you know, talking about uh, talking about what happened between the Monday and the, I think it was the, no, the Friday was when he announced lockdown. I can't remember exactly was when, when we got the full details of the furlough scheme. I think we got the outline of it the same night as the lockdown announcement. But during that week, I mean, that was the longest week of all time, and lots of other people in other businesses that I really respect and great brands laid off hundreds of people that week, um, and. We considered doing that, um, but ultimately decided that, you know, we wanted to just try and avoid that at all costs. And, you know, of course, the, the thought goes through your mind, particularly when everyone else is doing it. Um, you know, is this something that we should be doing as well? But w- w- I felt that there was enough signaling in what Boris had been saying that they were going to provide some support. So we, we decided to hold back. And actually, we wrote to all of our staff and said, you know, we have 300 staff. So we said, look, clearly this is crazy times um don't worry we're going to pay you in full for this week irrespective of how much you've worked because obviously lots of you have only done a few hours and we're going to pay you in full for next week as well um you know an average of your last 10 pay slips or something like that um so you know you don't have to worry about the next couple of weeks um and because lots of our staff you know they're hourly or part-time rather than full-time salaried um because they're students in bands learning to act whatever they might be doing um and yeah kind of like let's hold on and see what the chancellor comes out with um certainly they went a lot further initially than i expected them to so you know i did not expect 80 percent um and i don't think many people did you know that's almost kind of scandinavian level of support so i think that was great and i was you know i was really pleased with that unfortunately that kind of started to unravel over the next couple of months because you know, as so often with these things, you know, the detail is actually what defines them. And, and the 80% is a great headline and it's great for most industries, but 
unfortunately for hospitality, um, it excluded Tronc, which is service charge. And as I'm sure you know, um, and lots of your listeners may as well, but you know, when you pay a 12.5% or 10% service charge in a restaurant, that goes into a pot and that goes to the staff. And certainly in our case, 100% of that goes to the staff. Um, but that's part of their pay and that's part of their usual compensation. And it, you know, it goes through their pay slip and national insurance is paid on it, et cetera, et cetera. So that is a big part of how they receive their compensation. And unfortunately, that was later excluded from Tronc. Um, and that had a big impact on the staff. You know, I happen to think that because Tronc was taken up, uh, sorry, because furlough was taken up by so many businesses and perhaps businesses that they hadn't the government hadn't necessarily expected would take advantage of it like you know large management consultant companies law firms you know all manner of businesses and perhaps some of those hadn't been as affected by the pandemic as others and therefore the cost of the whole thing started to swell beyond to beyond what they had thought it would and therefore when it came to the detailed questions of should we include this should we include that or not they started to say no to a lot of stuff which i understand but unfortunately, it's had a devastating effect on our team members and it's been a real problem for them, which is a shame because the headline of the scheme was very good. Yeah, you're right. I I certainly, you know, on a personal level, didn't expect uh, the number of businesses uh, that have to uh, to ask for some poor support. There wasn't even an, an MP, I think, last week who'd furloughed himself, I think, wasn't it, ironically? So, uh yeah, I I I, uh, I I share that perspective. Although it was great in, in in some regards, with regards to impact on your team, then how many of them do you think have been able to survive and are, and are waiting to be reemployed, or, or have a lot of them gone off and, and get other jobs? And I suppose how quickly do you see you being able to uh, reemploy those people? And multiple questions here because there's also been chats this week about sort of companies contributing twenty five percent, I guess, from August onwards. So yeah, what's your thoughts on on how we get out of this with the team? specifically sure so look i mean we have a natural level of um kind of you know a natural level of drop-off anyway as a hospitality business so you know most weeks a few people will leave anyway because they're going back into education or they're going back home wherever that might be somewhere else in europe somewhere to australia or you know various reasons so we're, we're recruiting all the time and usually onboarding you know five or ten people a week so as soon as you stop the recruitment process, which we did in February, your headcount, our headcount, you know, starts to decline naturally anyway. So I think we're down to about 250 now um, and about from, from 300 and, and 240 or so are on furlough. Basically, everyone except the team in our roastery and a, a few others. Um, so look, they, everyone has been able to survive. You know, we've, we've been very clear to our team saying, look, if, you know, we, we are recovering everything we can for you and we're giving you everything we can. If, you, if you're if you in real difficulty, please come forward and please talk to us and we'll help you. So, you know, where that has happened, we've we've loaned people money or given them, you know, given them some money or whatever we need to do to, to help them survive. We've also been, you know, Lucy, our people director, has been amazing. She's been on the phone to people's landlords, negotiating rent deferrals for for, for our staff and things like that. So, Look, I think they've been able to survive. It's not been it's not been great, but obviously our goal is to retain as many of them as as we possibly can for as long as possible, 
so that they're there to help us reopen the business as well, you know, because that's what that's what they want to do, and that's what and that's what we want to do. So, in terms of the the contributing, um, you know, I don't. Uh, I think I think it's right that we should start to contribute to the scheme, and all businesses should. I think perhaps that should probably be looked at on a sector by sector basis rather than just a blanket basis. You know, I'm not sure. I think the scheme should fall away quite um, quite dramatically for businesses that clearly are able to function remotely versus businesses which is impossible for them to function. You know, you know, looking at airlines as the most extreme example. It's like, of course, how can airlines possibly employ anyone at the moment when there are no planes flying or very few planes flying? So I think they do need to look at that a little bit on a sector-by-sector basis. Um, and look, I think the question about when we can get them back into work is is kind of the you know the 10 million dollar question isn't it which is the same as when can you reopen and the answer to that is a lot more complicated than just july the 4th you know because okay july the 4th might be the day that we are perhaps it's no longer going to be illegal for us to open because you know at the moment it is illegal for us to open we are closed by government order um but just because that changes, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's viable for us to open. Just when it's legal again doesn't mean they make it, you know, doesn't make it viable. Certainly we need clarity on social distancing. Is it a meter? Is it two meters? Or is it no distance at all? And then kind of even more importantly than that, you know, I think everyone gets, everyone's really excited in the industry about talking about plastic screens and masks and sanitizers and, you know, in the Sunday Times, drawing diagrams of cover counts and all this kind of stuff. Like, that's all great. But the reality is, like, until, A, if you're a central, you know, if you're a city-based business, and particularly somewhere like central London, until people start coming to central London again, there's no point being open. So, you know, my site in Liverpool Street or my site in Soho or Covent Garden or uh, London Bridge, these sites are reliant on, people who commute onto trains into London to go to work and tourists and then a little bit of locals. At the moment, there are zero tourists and there's virtually zero, um, you know, there's virtually no one coming into London to go to the offices and, and therefore there's no one to go to these places. So until that changes, it kind of doesn't really matter if it's a metre or two metres or plastic screen or mask. You, you know, all of that stuff is is secondary really to the fact that these places need footfall to survive and they need people in to be in the local area. And really until that starts to change, it's not going to be viable to open. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. And I think, you know, we, we touched on this uh, before we started recording that sort of, you know, how do you come up with, with rules and regs for the industry when it's so different for so many people in the fact that, as I mentioned, you know, we've got a beachfront terrace and it would be easier to manage distancing on our private terrace than it is to manage it on the beach at the moment. But yeah, if you're an underground venue in central London relying on, on air conditioning, that's different. And as you say, it doesn't matter what the rules and the regs say, fundamentally you need customers. So what can the government, what, what should they be doing, do you think, to offer further support? Because that's a huge unknown, isn't it? I think RBS came out, was in the Times this week, saying that you know they weren't going to bring their staff back to the city until September. Uh, what more support are you and others going to need to um, to get through this? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm not I'm not going to pretend it's easy or simple. And I think, you know, whether you think they're doing a great job or a terrible job, um, it's certainly not 
an enviable job. It's very, very complex. Um, I think, you know, the, the big issues, the, the, the big costs for businesses like mine are, are rent and staff costs. So I think the government needs to do something about rent. You know, there's lots of people in the trade calling for a nine-month uh, timeout or a rent-free, rent effectively. Look, I, I don't know exactly what the details it should be. I think it, there are other parts of the world where there's a rent furlough scheme where, uh, you know, the landlord is taking a third discount, the government's paying a third, and the tenant is paying a third. Um, I think there are various options, but something has to be done about that. Like just leaving it to everyone to sort out is not going to work um, and is going to result in a lot of legal action and a lot of arguments and a lot of difficulty. I think the furlough system needs to be extended and taper off kind of over the next year or so as things go back to normal. Um, I think that would be a very obvious one to look at, you know, reducing VAT to 5% perhaps in the hardest hit sectors, you know, maybe travel, hospitality, uh, some other leisure, some other parts of leisure that are just been, you know, decimated by this. I think that would be quite an obvious and easy one. They've already done rates. I think beyond that, the rate system needs a bit more of a review to, uh, you know, just to be a bit fairer in terms of online versus offline. Um, and, Look, there's a lot that there is a lot that needs to be done. I think ultimately the first thing that needs to be done is, you, you know, this lockdown needs to be ended as quickly as possible, and it needs to start to 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 move towards a place where everyone is not locked down, and different age groups and different risk groups are affected in different ways. You, you know, to me, it's crazy to be locking up. You know, I'm not saying it was crazy at the time because there was a lot of unknowns, but based on you know, the information that we've seen come out in the last eight to 10 weeks, it seems that it seems a blunt instrument to be locking up all of the 20 year olds and stopping them getting on with their lives when they are so, you know, disproportionately affected by this. So, you know, there, there needs, you know, in my, in my personal view, there needs to be a little bit more um, in terms of customizing this based based on the different risk groups and those those who are clearly much more at risk from this disease, because if we don't start to move back towards reality and get uh, normality rather and get more of these businesses open and start generating some money, there's going to be you know huge layoffs. There's going to be huge issues in terms of you know just funding you know funding society. So we have to start getting back to that as quickly as possible, and I think we want to as well. You know, I personally really want to start doing things normally again, and I think lots of others do as well. Yeah, I agree, and and I think there's been some really positive news in the last few days on the uh, the you know the infection rate, the R rate, uh, new cases. You know, in London specifically, again, I guess as well as uh, different demographics uh, of humans, it's different demographics of, of of the country and regional areas that maybe can get released at different times. But I can't imagine you know what it's like being in in London and realizing yeah how small the numbers of infections are at the moment. But like you say, the the blunt instrument of um, of you know, nigh on complete lockdown and let's hope that as it, as it is starting to release and, and i think although the government are releasing things incrementally i think you know human beings are also using a, a little bit of their common sense as i've said before you know the, the beach is very busy and from what i hear the parks in london uh, are very busy as well is that your your experience of the public space is busy up there yeah unbelievably so i was in london, london fields yesterday which is uh for some reason broadway market and london fields is constantly in the in the newspapers i don't know why but it's where the photographers seem to go to 
take a photograph of a busy park or a busy street um, to put in the national papers. But yeah, it's crazy busy up there. And I think you're right. Look, I think I think we're all just starting to you know make up our own minds on this thing. You know, in the same way that you know I know that I know that it's a very poor analogy, but you know some people decide to smoke based on understanding the risk factors. And I think look, while while I wouldn't compare coronavirus to smoking at all, there's clearly you know clearly one is a one is an informed decision and one is an enforced decision to 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 avoid it and i think at some point it needs to start going towards the place where you make up your own mind based on your own level of risk that you're happy to have and your own you know your own personal risk level based on health and age as opposed to and you know and it's up to us to decide how we how we interact and, and w- what level of risk we're comfortable with personally. I think it needs to start to move towards that rather than just this, you know, this blunt instrument of complete lockdown. Um, and you know, to be fair, it feels like it feels like that's the government's intention as well to start to start allowing us to make more decisions for ourselves rather than imposing those on us. Yeah, agreed. Um, you mentioned this just now, and it, and it feels like the next cliff that uh, probably many industries, but certainly hospitality, is, is approaching fast. We are five weeks away from the next quarter's uh, rent payments due. Uh, JD and the timeout campaign that you mentioned, and I know UK hospitality are also, um, you know, looking at some sort of, of government support. You know, potentially two million jobs lost and eighty percent of the industry going under if that next quarter's rent is enforced with with zero discount. What's your experience with landlords are you having any luck in negotiations uh, and what's your thoughts on, on what will happen if we don't come up with some sort of national framework on rent yeah look i think all in all our, our landlords have been great actually um we have one who's been pretty difficult um but apart from that that all the others have been have been great and we've had very sensible conversations um most of those uh, you know everyone's agreed everyone except for one has agreed uh, that they certainly won't be chasing. Several have agreed uh, a holiday on the rent, i.e. it will never be play, paid and the, when, the rent is waived. Everyone else has agreed a deferral. But I've said to them, you know, I've said to them that our position is that it's not that we can't pay this now, it's we can't pay it ever, clearly, because the government has forced us to close our doors. So how can we possibly pay rent? So that's not going to change in June. I think it's slightly helpful that the july 4th date is just after the june date because at least at least at the point of it being due we're still closed um but yeah look as i said earlier i think i think something is needed from government on this you know i'm sure they're going to extend the lease uh the forfeiture moratorium but the problem with that is that they haven't uh they haven't stopped the ability for people to collect debts um so that's kind of only a part solution at the moment and look, something something needs to be legislated from them. You know, there are various options being kicked around as we discussed. Something needs to become, you know, needs to be legislated uh, to deal with this because look, I think in reality, most businesses are just not going to pay that rent at the end of June. And, and all that, it, you know, I think no one out there or very few business owners out there are going to choose to pay that knowing that the next day, therefore, they have to lay off all their staff. They're going to prioritise their staff as they should. Therefore, there's just more rent on the pile unpaid, and therefore, there's just a more adversarial situation between a landlord and tenant. And 
without some clear guidance or scheme of some kind from government, that situation is just going to get more and more adversarial and worse and worse. So, so something has to happen. And what was the second part of that question? Forgot. No idea, but that was a really good answer. So <laughs> thanks. There we go. I, you know, I think our, our responsibility as uh, as directors is to make sure that the business can stay solvent and, and can keep trading. And I think you're right. You know, we're going to focus on the things that enable to do us to do that. So keeping our to- team employed, uh, yeah, look, looking at a way to reopen and to trade in some way. And, and most of us, you know, want to find a way to navigate and trade out of this. And, and yeah, you're right. You know, it, the expectation can't simply be that the rent is deferred, as you alluded to as well with... 2019 you know tough tough time in hospitality anyway margins are super tight and it and it's just completely unrealistic uh, however you know there are a number of landlords that have also got significant amounts of debt and they've also got businesses to run so it does feel like the government are going to need to step in in some way and provide a framework and, and releasing you know the more the mortgage companies and, and the lenders higher up the chain it, it feels like yeah you know we're, we're right at the bottom of the hierarchy here as the operators on the high street and and to get all the way up the chain to whoever ultimately has has lent the money is going to require some sort of framework from the government so yeah uh, and, it, and it feels like you, you know they did it on the private sector and you know they they put pressure on the banks to make sure that the banks said that they wouldn't collect uh, mortgage payments from buy to let customers on request which obviously allowed you know small buy to let um property owners who who rent their property out to you know to various people including no doubt some of our staff um that allowed them to offer the staff to you know to offer tenants a discount and the same thing needs to happen on the commercial sector and then you end up with the problem of okay well what about the people who at the very top of the chain who own all of this property freehold and don't have any bank debt and then i think you have to say that those people are probably those businesses are are, are better placed than others to to offer some kind of break because you know if if in reality if they own huge amounts of freehold property and there's no debt against it with a re-gearing of the lease or perhaps an extending of the lease or something like that, you you know, you feel that they should be able to make a compromise. So it doesn't feel insurmountable as a challenge, as an issue. It's definitely complex and it's definitely not straightforward, but it feels like there is a route for them, for for government to come out with some legislation and rules around a scheme to to fix all of this because it is a big problem. Yeah, no, agree with that. Okay, look, I'm very conscious of time, and, I, and I've used lots of it. So thank you. It's been, uh, you know, re- really interesting to chew the fat. I guess last one. You, you've looked at reopening. You, you know, you've opened. Uh, was it one so far? Are, are there others that you can open up as a as a as a takeaway moving forward? And and particularly around this sort of COVID secure, I suppose, and risk assessment based. Uh, just finally, yeah, what's what's your thoughts on on how you reopen? Not you know, partly from a customer safety perspective, but also I suppose from a staff safety perspective. Have you looked at that? And, and is it economically viable to put in some of those measures? You know, kitchens tend to be quite small spaces with chefs. So yeah, just final thoughts on on what reopening will look like. Look, if it's two meters, then it's just not practical to open the vast majority of our sites. That's that's the reality. The kitchens are too tight. The kitchens are too small. There's not enough space behind the bar. We would have to remove so many covers from the restaurant that it would just not be commercially viable. So that's you know a pretty clear picture to me that it's just not going to be possible. You know, maybe you could open some outdoor space, but it's going to be very challenging. Look, I think we're we're focused on doing what we can so we're focused very heavily on the online side of the business you know we also supply so house group worldwide with coffee 
So we're, we're, you know, we're supplying them as they reopen. And basically, I'm focusing on controlling the things that we can control, which is, you know, people coming to us to buy coffee, basically. And then we'll open up each site as and when we feel we can as as regulations change and hopefully relax. But there's little prospect of most of our estate opening while London is a ghost town and social distancing is in place, to be honest. Um, and that, that unfortunately is is the, the state of affairs, which is not particularly positive, but that is just the reality. You know, most restaurants can't survive on 80% of their turnover, let alone 25% of their turnover. It just doesn't work. Thanks for your honesty, David. Really appreciate it. And, and I think considering, you know, sort of how messed up things are and, and how we've really got no idea as a sector, you know, how we come out of this, you know, full respect for being happy to chat it through and, and being so frank and, and so honest and, and reasonably positive, I suppose, on where we'll get to uh, long term. If people want to follow your journey or if they want to purchase some stuff uh, online and show their support, where's the best place for them to go? Just uh, Instagram at grind and then grind.co.uk. Nice and easy. Okay, perfect. That is nice and easy. Well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, good luck and uh, focusing on getting your business uh, back on track. And thanks for sparing the time to uh, to join me on the podcast. Really appreciate it. No problems at all. En- enjoy and uh, good luck with uh, good luck with getting everything reopened. So there you have it. I thought David had some great, rational and informed perspectives on what more help is required for the sector to help navigate through these challenging times. Uh, do head over to humansofhospitality.co.uk to find links to David's Instagram. And whilst you're there, please do sign up for our weekly newsletter. At the moment, with episodes being much more time relevant than the pre-pandemic versions, I'm trying to get two conversations a week out on a Tuesday and a Saturday. So click on subscribe and I will be back in your ears in just a few days time.